Amen, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, that was a real hearty, enthusiastic good morning. Not. That was not that. Let's run that back. We'll try it again. Good morning. Okay, just want to make sure you're with me. Good morning. It is good to be together, apparently. Uh, But you can go ahead and get your Bibles out, and you can start making your way to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, which is where we're going to be this morning. We are in the second of four weeks uh, where we're making our way through uh, the book of 2 Peter. And it's worth noting, uh, given that this is a short book, uh, let me just lay out where we're going preaching-wise over the next number of months. So uh, through May 21, uh, we'll be in 2 Peter. At that point, I actually will begin a sabbatical, uh, which by the way has been long planned, but want to make sure everyone's in the loop on that. Uh, and so then I'll be gone till the beginning of August. Uh, during that time as a church, we'll move our way through uh, selections in the Psalms. Pastor Brian, Pastor Clint, uh, Eric Anderson, Chris Risk will be preaching uh, during that time. Um, and then uh, when I return, and then in August, we'll begin 2 Corinthians. And that's going to run us right up until about the end of 2023. And then we're back into uh, the last section of Genesis as we start 2024. So that's where we're going. Uh, but this morning... We are in 2 second, Peter, I keep wanting to call it 1 Peter, 2 Peter uh, 1, uh, verses 16 to 21. And as we fix our attention on God's word here this morning, um, I, I want us to consider witnessing an event, uh, particularly to witness an event in a, a firsthand nature or a manner, because there is something unique, there is something special about being able to witness an event, whether that event be a historical event, uh, whether that be a sporting event, which is always better in person, uh, whether that be some kind of natural phenomenon that you're not looking at a picture, but you actually get to see uh, whatever that is uh, in front of you, or even just to be uh, at a gathering with a group of people, whatever the case may be, where you are there and you're in the room and you saw all that happened, Shouldn't be surprised at all that Zoom weddings didn't exactly take off, right? There's no joy in that because you're not present, you're not together, you're not witnessing it. And I say this, and I want us to think this way because the text that we come to is going to highlight two very important witnesses uh, with respect to the veracity and the truthfulness of God's Word. Uh, And and I'll just tell you right here, those two witnesses are going to be Peter himself, and he's going to be representative of the apostles, and then the scriptures uh, are going to be the two witnesses that we're going to hear from. But what God's Word is going to lead us to, here's the main idea of what's in front of us here this morning, that we stand in God's Word, convinced of God's truth through God's witnesses, that the witnesses are going to tell us what God has actually said, and we can stand in that and be convinced of of it. And so I'm going to read uh, the passage. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. This is 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Loved ones, this is the Word of the Lord, and it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the, the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you take your seats, and we're going to pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we're thankful for the ways that your word does your work. And God, even this morning as we come to a passage that teaches us about your word, God, we pray that you would give us greater confidence in your word, a greater surety in your word, a greater hunger and desire for your word. God, would you have the freedom uh, in these coming moments uh, to, to have your way with your people, to challenge and edify and, and, and encourage and rebuke and whatever it is that we need, God, that you would be accomplishing it now in and through your people for your glory. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning, God, praying for Desert Springs and for Pastor Ryan Kelly. Father, we pray that you'd be moving and working in that body of believers in the same way that we desire that you would move and work within us. And so, Father, come now, be glorified, have your way, give us greater confidence in your word, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Stand in the Word, right? Stand in the Word. Last week, we talked about standing in Jesus. This week, stand in the Word, all under the heading of standing in the gospel. Um, and, and again, this main idea that we stand in God's word, convinced of God's truth through God's witnesses. And so this passage uh, divides quite evenly, quite nicely, into two sections, uh, both of which are witnesses uh, to the truthfulness and the veracity of God, uh, one being Peter, the other being the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend our time uh, looking at the, in these two sections around uh, those, uh, these two witnesses. And so if we're going to stand in the Word, here's the first thing that we see, is that we have to trust the eyewitnesses, right? that we trust the eyewitnesses. So, so look at what Peter says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right? He's like, we saw it. We heard it. We, we, we were there. And so this first witness, the eyewitness, really is representative of the apostles, although it's coming through the perspective of Peter. And if you think back to verses 12 through 15, where Peter was reminding the believers of all that they had in Christ, but he also said, remember, he made that note in verse 14, he's like, I'm going to die soon. And, and so, so he wants to make sure that they can have confidence in the word. And so surprisingly, he actually begins in verse 16 by addressing an accusation that, that isn't clear to us, at least not on the surface, but when we realize what he's saying, it becomes quite clear. Because he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And the myth, right, there was this myth, this false teaching that was going around. And, and apparently it revolved around the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so he's like, listen, before I go, I want to make sure that you're clear that what we're teaching you is not a myth. This is, in fact, the truth of God. And so make note of this. First of all, we're not following a clever myth. We're not following a clever myth. Praise God for that, by the way, right? Wouldn't that be a bummer? Get the end of your life and it's like, oh, you were fooled. That would be tragic. It really would be. But we're not following a clever myth, right? And so, so, so Peter, now he's going to address false teaching all of next week, all of chapter two, all around false teaching. We're going to see plenty of that next week. But there's this accusation and, and this myth 
around the power and the coming of Jesus. And, and let me just make this note. I think it's important for us to realize that even in Peter's day, people were dismissive of the Word of God. Every generation has to wrestle with people within their generation that does not believe, that is not yielded, that is not submitted to the Word of God, that does not hold it as authoritative. That what, what you and I see is not a new trend. It's been happening since Peter's day, right? And so, so this is why he's addressing it, not only uh, providentially for the people of his day, but it's, it's providential for us. And he speaks to this coming of the Lord Jesus, and we're like, okay, which coming? Now, in the immediate context, we might be inclined to think of the first coming, but in the broader context of the book of 2 Peter, the rest of the book, he's going to deal with the second coming of Jesus. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about judgment uh, and how God did not spare a variety of groups of people from judgment. In chapter 3, he's going to address this question that was floating around around the promise of his coming, but everyone's dying and he still hasn't come back. And he's going to exhort the believers in 3.12, be patient and, and await uh, his return. And so contextually, the whole rest of the book of Second Peter, when, when it deals with the coming of Jesus, it's going to point us to his second coming. And that would seem to be the myth that he's pushing against. And the reason that this is so important is that when you think about a false teacher, let's just talk about false teachers here for just a moment, really a teaser for next week, but false teachers gain traction and they gain a following by issuing an appealing and accommodating and attractive word to lure people in. Right, they give the people what they want to hear. And so one of the prevailing heresies that Peter's addressing here is this dismissive attitude towards the return of Jesus. And here's what you got to understand. If you eliminate the return of Jesus, you are now eliminating any sense of judgment for sin or defiance. That was the allure. No accountability. Right? When you think about the return of Jesus, that is God holding humanity accountable. Right? When Jesus comes back, it's going to center around judgment. And so if there's no second coming, right, then the thinking is, well, there's no judgment. And I'm free to do what I want. And I'm not going to be held accountable. And there's no consequence for sin. Does that sound like anything else? That sounds like the nonsense that gets peddled in our day, does it not? I and mean, we see this all over the place. And, and here's what's incredibly insidious, is it gets peddled in our day under the guise of Christianity, when it is, hear me when I say this, demonstrably demonic. Because there's nothing worse than giving someone false assurance with respect to their standing before the Lord and telling them they're, they're okay when they are definitively not okay. And so Peter's saying, listen, this isn't a game. Unless you think this is the first time we've seen this, loved ones, the Bible begins with this. The very first lie that Satan utters revolved around this. Right, remember Eve? Hey, if you eat the fruit, you're not going to die. You won't die. That's what the serpent says in Genesis 3, 4. In a sense, he's saying you're, you're not going to be held accountable. God won't judge you. He won't bring to completion what he said earlier. Right? And Satan's been playing this card ever since. And so Peter's trying to help us see this isn't a game. This isn't cute. This is e eternal life and death. Right? That's what's at stake. There's, there's a seriousness in this. And so this is where we, even as believers, we've got to be careful right? that we're not lulled into this place where the necessity of gospel proclamation gets minimized or reduced in our life. 
And so the admonition, right, the admonition is, is this gives confidence to us in the truth and the veracity of God's word. But the implication or the action is that this should compel us to share the gospel, right? We should be driven, we should be reminded of just how serious all that's at stake when we think about the people around us. And so ask yourself, do you, do you find yourself compelled to share the gospel? Right? When you think about friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, does it well up inside of you like, they have to know? Or you maybe feel less compelled, less inclined. And maybe the thing that would be helpful is if you saw them, not primarily through as a neighbor or as a co-worker or as a family member, not their social standing or their political standing, but if you looked at them through the lens of, how are they presently positioned before God? Are they sheltered under the blood? Or if things were to stand, are they subjected to wrath? That might change how we feel about our compulsion. Serious. In fact, loved ones, let me, let me just challenge you. Let me just challenge you to be diligently praying for someone with respect to sharing the gospel, even, even over these next few weeks. So between now and the end of May, just ask the Lord, God, would you let me share the gospel? And maybe you can think of the person, you're like, oh, I know who it is. Right? Like, I, I know this is the person I want to share the gospel with. Maybe you're like, I don't know who it is. And so you just start asking the Lord, God, would you let me do this? Would you let me share the gospel? And, and, and if you're sitting here and you're like, I, I don't know any non-believers. I got two things for you. One, start praying and asking God to give you opportunities to meet non-believers. And two, you should start knocking on your neighbor's door this week. I promise you that will remedy that issue because there's no way any of us live on a street entirely comprised of all believers. And if I'm proven wrong, you can come back and make fun of me next week. But that means you went and met all your neighbors and I'm still going to count that as a win. All right. But we are not following a clever myth. It's a serious truth, which leads right into what Peter says next. That we're to believe those who are present. Right? We're supposed to trust the eyewitnesses. Right? Peter says at the end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he starts to share of this particular account in verse 17 and 18. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right, so notice two things. First of all, that the apostles saw Jesus' majesty. Now, now, what Peter is directly referencing here is the transfiguration. So Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, all places you go into the New Testament and see the, the, the glorified uh, moment or Jesus being glorified before uh, Peter, James, and John. And this is one of those firsthand accounts, right? They, they were there. They're like, no, we, we saw it. We, we witnessed it. We were present. This isn't someone else telling us about it. We witnessed it. We had firsthand knowledge of what was happening in that moment. In fact, John, in the beginning of his letter, 1 John, writes very similarly, although not necessarily about the transfiguration, but notice how all the firsthand senses that he's speaking to with respect to Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's like, we, we saw it. 
But he also said we, we, we heard him. Like we heard God speak. Well, that's the second thing we see here. That the, the apostles heard God's, God's voice. voice. That God, God spoke. And they heard God speaking. Now, it's a fascinating thing that Peter is doing here, both in terms of him as an eyewitness, as well as how he's going to weave in the Old Testament here, starting in verse 19. And yet, part of what's fascinating is how he uses the transfiguration in all of this. I mean, he could have gone to all kinds of different places, and yet he's using that for a reason. And I think one of the reasons that he may be using the transfiguration is because it profoundly echoed what God had already spoken in Psalm 2, right? So in Psalm 2, you have this psalm about the reign of the Lord's anointed. And in Psalm 2, well, let me, I'm going to read a portion of it here. I'm not going to read all of it. I would commend all of it to you. Uh, but let me read a portion of it here, starting in verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so in connecting the transfiguration with a text like Psalm 2, it's accomplishing a few things right, that, that, that Peter seems to be driving at. One, in both of these accounts, in both Psalm 2 and in the Transfiguration, you have a voice calling out from heaven about the Son. Secondly, you have a, a very clear directive that the Son is going to be the one who's going to come in power and is going to judge the earth, right, which immediately addresses this myth that's going around uh, saying Jesus isn't going to come back. And then thirdly, it becomes this just brilliant bridge to the second witness that we're going to find in verses 19 uh, through 21, right? That the word itself, that the Old Testament is going to confirm what Peter is advocating for, that God had established his word, and that established word is going to confirm and align with what he as an eyewitness is putting forward. And he's telling us that we're to trust the eyewitnesses, that we want to trust those who were there. Now, um, as easy as it would be to just jump right into verse 19. I feel like we got to pause right here for a moment because I think there's some things. When we, we look at the, the, the apostle's life and we examine some of the shifts um, and the progression that takes place in them, it really is quite insightful with respect to what's going on here in 2 Peter 1. Because the, the disciples, through Jesus' earthly ministry, they don't fully get what he's doing. So in Mark 8, there, there's a, a two-part healing in Mark 8, which really is an image of what's going on with the disciples. And so Jesus goes to heal a blind man, and the man is blind, and then he goes from blind to seeing, but it's still really blurry, right? He says, I, I see people, and they're like trees. And the idea is, it's like, well, I can see, but it's still not clear. Jesus touches him again, and he sees with clarity. And that's really an image of what's going on with the disciples through Jesus' earthly ministry. It's like they see, but not with full clarity. And so then we shouldn't be shocked, we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus goes to the cross, right, when Jesus is crucified, what do the disciples do? They go run and hide. They're not bold and courageous. They're not like, we knew this was going to happen. Like, whoa, we, we got to get away. And here's why, because up until that moment, in many capacities, the disciples were looking first and foremost for a political savior, not a spiritual one. They were more concerned 
with what Jesus could do for them with respect to Rome than what Jesus could do for them and their sin. And yet, what happens after the resurrection? They're entirely different. In fact, they're almost unrecognizable. They go from this cowardly, fearful group of individuals to where they are boldly proclaiming the gospel, even in the face of threats of, of harm and imprisonment and even death. Right? Luke or Acts 4 being a great place where we see this, where the religious leaders right, recognize them as having been with Jesus. So you're like, what, what, what changed? What happened? Like, what, what is going on inside of them? Let me have you flip with me for just a moment to Luke 24. Turn over to Luke 24, because I think Luke 24 gives us great insight into what changed in the disciples and why Peter is speaking so definitively and confidently uh, here in 2 Peter 1. So Luke 24 is Luke's um, recounting of the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a few different scenes uh, in his account. The first scene uh, is the women go to the empty tomb and they're greeted by the angels. Uh, the second scene is, scene is Jesus is on the road to Emmaus uh, with these two individuals. And then the third scene that I want to focus our attention on here for a moment is where Jesus appears to the disciples, right? And they're up in the upper room or in an upper room they're, and they're, they're, they're fearful and they're afraid and he just shows up. And I want to pick it up here in verse 44. Uh, let me read through verse 49. It says this, And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, right? That same thing. Verse 49, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Two things that I want to highlight here that I think are um, uh, foundational to the change we see in the disciples. First of all, they saw the resurrected Christ. That'll change anybody, right? Like They, they see him, uh, and I think for the first time, they really begin to grasp, oh, this wasn't about Rome. This was about our sin. But that is happening in conjunction with that for the first time, I think they really finally come to understand the scriptures. So look at verse 45. This is a fascinating line. Uh, it says, then he, talking about Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I think for the first time, the disciples are coming to realize, oh, the whole of the Old Testament was actually about Jesus. It was always pointing us to you, and to this moment, and to your salvation. So verse 45, you could argue, is that Jesus is giving them a Christ-centered hermeneutic for the Old Testament. Because in verse 46, when it says, thus it is written, he's not talking about New Testament texts. They don't exist at this moment. He can only be talking about Old Testament texts when he's saying this. So for the first time, they're realizing, oh, the whole of the Bible is pointing, leaning, directing us towards Jesus. And so don't miss, don't miss. For the disciples, it was understanding that Jesus was the interpretive center of the scriptures that empowered and emboldened them. Did you hear that? You need to hear that because the same is going to be true for you and I. It's understanding that Jesus is the interpretive center of the entirety of the scriptures. That's what empowered and emboldened them. Right? They see the resurrected Christ. For the first time, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm looking at the scriptures like they're brand new. They've been pointing them all along. 
It's like, do you remember when you were a kid and you're watching a cartoon and like someone in the cartoon finally gets it, right? And the light bulb flashes above their head. It's like, bing! It's like one of these moments. It's like, oh, you can see above all the disciples' head. It's like, bing! Like they're finally getting it. The light bulb lights up. They're like, oh, this is what's happening. But we need this because the same is true for us. See, the Bible is telling us and we fully believe what the Bible is telling us about Jesus, it's going to empower and embolden us. And I wonder, loved ones, I wonder if some of the disconnect in our lives is tied to some of this, is tied to failing to see Jesus as the interpretive center of the scriptures. Because maybe for you, you open up the Bible and you look for some kind of moralistic teaching. You want the fortune cookie wisdom for the day or whatever it is. Or you want to see your theological grid. Or you want permission to live in a particular manner and way. And yet what you should be looking for is Jesus and, and how the Bible is pointing to him and how he's rescued us and saved us from our sin, being honest about our own state and what God has done to remedy that. That's what we should be looking for. Bottom line, Jesus is teaching us how to read our Bibles. That's what's happening in Luke 24. Jesus is teaching us, here's how you read the Bible. It's about me. And we have to understand it that way. We have to read it that way. That, that, that's what Peter's come to understand. And that's why he's sharing it in 2 Peter 1. Dave Helm, who's a pastor in the Chicago area, has this great quote around this idea right here. And he says, in many churches, the word of God can be read and the word of God can be preached, but the voice of God is not heard. And what he's saying is we open our Bibles and we fail to miss how it's moving, directing, pointing us towards Jesus. Right? We, we miss how God is moving us in that way. I'll give you one example. David and Goliath. I mean, it's the most egregious, abused, misused text maybe in all the Bible. Because how many times do people open up their Bible and you see David and then the way we run with that is slay your giants. That is the furthest thing from what's going on in that text. Goliath is, is depicted as a serpent, right? the scale armor. David, stepping in as a type of Christ, rescues the people of God from certain destruction and death. It's not about slaying your giants. It's about God's gonna, how God's going to rescue his people. And for a moment, we're like, oh, maybe he's the Genesis 3 one. And then he definitively proves that he's not in a myriad of ways. But he's pointing us forward to Jesus. And yeah, how many times, right? How many times do we open our Bible? And we read it, we preach it, we teach it, but the voice of God is not heard. Oh, God, help us. God, help us that that would not be us. We want to trust the eyewitnesses, and we want to see Jesus. Which is what leads right into this second witness, starting in verse 19. That we trust God's confirmed word. We trust God's confirmed word. The second witness is the word itself. Look at what he says, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right? So Peter's like, I could speak to you from my, my firsthand account uh, basis, but the more forceful argument, the more confirmed argument actually comes from the word. And so again, he's about to die, but he's like, listen, I'm not nearly as important as the word is. 
Right? You've got all you need in the Word. You can trust whatever the Word issues, whatever the Word offers, you can trust. It's all that you need. Which isn't that, I mean, isn't that a helpful word? That we have all that we need in God's Word? That the, the, the Word is what is most reliable. The Word is what is most trustworthy. That the Word is more dependable than our experiences, than our perspectives, than our emotions. I don't know about you, but man, I've watched far too many people move into some really bad spaces and places because they want to make their feelings, their perspective, their experience the primary source of truth. And it's just dumb. Because your emotions and your heart and your feelings will lie to you. The Word of God will never lie to you. And so God help us. God help us that we'd be people who would trust God's word above all other things. Peter gives us a few reasons to do so. Here's the first, that God's word confirms God's truth. God's word confirms God's truth. So he says you've got this prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's like, it's been tested. It's proven true. It's, it, people have come at it. They've lost He's like, it's proven itself out. It's bore itself out. Like, let me just give us a few biblical examples of God's word confirming God's truth. Now, I've got four. I just want you to know that, that I had a sheet filled. We could have done 30 of these. We could have done the whole sermon. Just that's all we would have done, okay? Um, and I say that just to let you know, man, this is like tip of the iceberg, just scratching the surface, far from exhaustive. Here, God's word confirming God's truth. Genesis 2. If you eat of the tree, you'll die. Anybody met Adam and Eve? You know why? They're dead. That's why. God's word confirmed his truth. He told them in Genesis 3, I'm going to return you to the dust. Right? They're dead. Exodus, Exodus 3. I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I'm going to deliver them. Exodus 12, they're delivered. Right? God's word confirms this truth. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, right? that great passage of, of blessing for obedience, curse uh, for disobedience. Right? If, you, if you obey, uh, you'll live long in the land. It'll go well for you. If you don't obey, uh, it's going to go poorly and you're going to be exiled. Now, we could run to hundreds of different places to see how God's word is confirming God's truth. We'll just run right to the end. Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 44, they're exiled and destroyed. God's word confirms his truth. 2 Samuel 7, there'll be an eternal throne for David. Matthew 1.1, Jesus, the son of David. We know how that plays out. See, when you read the Bible, you're going to find uh, no shortage of examples where God, God's word confirms his truth. Right? God said it, and he did it. And so given the confirmation, here, here's what I want you to note. The command then is what? Because we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, we're to pay attention. We're to pay attention to the word. Now, now, paying attention, part of that is reflected in obedience. Part of that is reflected in a diligence. But there's a diligence to, to, to our pursuit of the word. Loved one, are you willing to do the work to learn the truth that God has put into his word? Think of it like this. There is no relationship, there is no relationship that functions well without deliberate and intentional and purposeful energy and effort that gets poured into it. 
Like, I don't know a single person that's like, I have the best marriage ever, and we've never worked at it. That person's a liar or a fool or on their honeymoon. That's the only options that exist, right? Because after that, real life shows up. And see, our relationship with the Lord is the same. One of the primary means by which we relate to God is through his word. And so you have to ask yourself, am I willing to invest? Am I willing to work at the relationship to rightfully pursue the Lord? Because here's the issue in our day and age. We've become so accustomed to convenience. And so in so many capacities of our life, we have the uh, online, single-click, delivered convenience of life, and we want to apply that to our spirituality as well. And there is no such thing as a convenient Christianity. That does not exist, loved ones. And so you got to ask, am I, am I willing to pay attention? Am I willing to obey? Am I willing to be diligent? Am I willing to put forth the effort that God's word, right, as I learn God's word, it's going to confirm God's truth. His word is powerful. His word is authoritative. And we're to yield to the word because we're to be yielded to God. Let me just say one other thing on this. Actually, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon say it because he just says it way better than I could say it. Uh, but he has really great insight into the value of the written word. Peter here is giving us both the spoken word of God as well as the written word of God. And I think sometimes uh, there, there can be an attitude where we're like, well, you know, the, it, it's written. Is that the same as if it's spoken? Well, Spurgeon writing on 2 Peter 1 has this to say. And it's a longer excerpt, so bear with me. He said, if I heard a voice speaking from the sky, I would obey it. That's not bad wisdom, by the way. You would do well to do that as well. Okay, if I heard a voice speaking from the sky, I would obey it. But the form in which your call has come has been better than that. For Peter in his second epistle tells us that he himself heard a voice out of the excellent glory when he was with our Lord in the Holy Mount. But he adds, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. As if the testimony which is in the word of God, the light that shineth in a dark place, which beams forth from the word of God, was more sure than even the voice which he heard from heaven. Do not say that you would not, or that you would accept that call if it were spoken with a voice rather than written. You know that's not so in daily life. If a man receives a written letter from his father or friend, does he attach less importance to it than he would if he had, had, got, had received spoken communication? I reckon that many of you in business are quite content to get written orders for goods. And when you get them, you do not require a purchaser to ask you in person. In fact, you commonly say that you would like to have it in black and white. Is it not so? Well, then, you have your wish. Here is the call in black and white. And I do but speak according to common sense when I say that if the Lord's call to you be written in the Bible, and it certainly is, you do not speak truth when you say, I would listen if it were spoken, but I cannot listen to it because it is written. The call is given by the book of inspiration. Or sorry, the call as given by the book of inspiration ought to have over your minds a masterly power. And if your hearts were right before God, that word spoken in the scriptures by the Holy Ghost would be at once obeyed. Oh, God help us. God help us that we would believe God's word and that we would see how God's word confirms God's truth. Here's the second thing we see, is that God's word illuminates God's truth. God's word illuminates God's truth, also in verse 19, right? We're told to pay attention, how? As to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
And he's saying that God's word illuminates it, it reveals, it helps us to see and to know. And we've all had that experience of being in a dark and unfamiliar place, and we're fumbling about, right, until the light comes on, and then we can see our way forward. So when, growing up in Flagstaff, there are these, these lava tubes just outside of town, uh, and that was a common thing to go do on a field trip, or sometimes dads would take their sons. Or when I was in high school, I'd go out there with my buddies sometimes. Um, and so you get, you, you get out into those, and that's a dark space. Because you get in there, and then you can't even see your hand right here. Right? You're doing that. You can't see anything. And, and so you, you don't want to be in that space without a light to illuminate the path forward. In fact, when I was in high school, I was out there with some of my buddies, and we were kind of tooling around, and we were all kind of exploring in some different areas. And my flashlight started to just kind of wig out a little bit. It was starting to short out. Uh, and so this moment of panic immediately welling up inside of me, because if it went out, I wasn't getting out. Uh, and so I finally got it to work and promptly made my way back to one of my friends so that if my flashlight quit working, that there would be some kind of a light to illuminate my pathway out. I say all this because here's what you have to know. That is exactly what the Word of God does for us. The Word of God illuminates into the dark place that you and I live, and it gives us clarity on the path forward. In fact, he says, right, he, he says uh, that, that the lamp shining in a dark place that dark place literally means a dungeon or squalor, and it's speaking to the evil of this world, and that God's word illuminates truth with respect to the evil that we see all around us. And so in trying to make sense of the world, that God's word is going to bring illumination. It's going to reveal. It's going to help us to know what's true. So a couple years ago, at like the height of the craziness that was all of our lives, I, I can remember just feeling so disoriented with what was going on in life and so confused as I'm sure uh, many of you uh, were as well and like what, what what is happening and what is going on and what are we to do with this and I remember that particular morning or one particular morning uh, during that season in my in my bible reading one of the places I was reading took me to Romans 1 and man like that cartoon character I read Romans 1 and like bing light came on I'm like oh there it is it's God's word revealing the truth because what God revealed in that moment through his word was that you and I live in a world where people have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of images. And we live in a world where people have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we live in a world where people have exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. And so because of that, God has given people over to their lust and he's given them over to their dishonorable passions and he has given them over to a debased mind. It was like, oh, there it is. The world actually makes plenty of sense now. It was the word of God illuminating the truth of God into the world around us. And loved ones, that is why you and I have to be Bible people. If you are not regularly soaking yourself in the word, you are living life in a cave without any light. And no wonder you're fumbling around. It's the Word of God that illuminates the truth of God. And we see that that happens until the day dawns. Now, when you see, particularly New Testament authors, talking about the day, that's almost always a reference to judgment. And so God here is hearkening back again that, oh, that day is going to dawn. Judgment is going to come. right? And it's the Word of God that's, that's pointing us that way. Here's what's fascinating, is that in the context He's talking about the Old Testament. 
Right, so this isn't revelation. This isn't something from the Gospels. He's talking about Old Testament texts that point us forward to this day that is going to come. And I don't know what text he had in mind. He might have what we referenced earlier, Psalm 2. That certainly would have been a good choice. But it is God's word illuminating God's truth in a world that wants to reject and deny and defy and ignore and disregard what God says. And yet even in the Old Testament, God's word is making very clear the reality of judgment. And so if you are here, listen to me, listen to me, if you are here and you are not a believer, what you have to understand is that day is going to come. And if you are outside of the blood of Jesus, you are going to be consumed in wrath. And so we would implore you to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus. And if you are in Christ, right, at a minimum, we should praise God that he has spared us from what we rightly deserve. But that should also compel us to be people who are sharing the gospel. God's word illuminates God's truth. Two other things that very much are related to each other, um, and then we're done. Here's the third item. And this will be one of the most obvious things that you've probably ever heard from the pulpit, but here it is. God's word comes from God. Are you not blown away by that? I mean, how stunning is that? And yet, it's important because this is one of the places where God's helping us to know that, right? We kind of chuckle and laugh. We know that, but it's texts like this that, that, that teach us this, right? He says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That God is the source, God is the origin, God is the basis. Right? This isn't Peter or any other author doing his own thing, and God's putting his rubber stamp of approval on it. This is the Lord. Some of you, in your work, you're familiar or you deal with intellectual property with what you do. The scriptures are God's intellectual property. They're just being used uh, and offered to us, which leads us to this final item that God carries his human authors. And I'm playing off this, this word here in verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's make sure that we understand the process here, that no one person is just making it up as they go or doing their own thing, but they're being carried. And that word carried, the Greek word there literally means ferried. Uh, and not like Tinkerbell ferry, I mean like boat ferry, right? So you're on the boat and being carried from point A to point B. Um, and this really helps to explain why you can have such an array of authors writing in so many different times and places and languages, and yet they all drive at the same thing. It's because God's driving the boat. They're just passengers on the boat. They're all arriving at the same port of call because God's taking them there. In fact, what, what, one of the most compelling arguments for Christianity is tied to this. Right? You think about the composition of the Bible. Roughly 40 authors, over 1,500 years, writing in multiple languages, and yet they tell a unified, cohesive message. If we walked out of here and witnessed a car wreck on Southern, we couldn't get our story straight. And yet all these guys, over all this time, are going to tell a singular message. One of, the greatest, one of the greatest arguments for why this is true. In fact, not only that, but this is why authors in the Old Testament can know nothing of Jesus. 
and yet they can write in a way that flawlessly give us categories and frameworks that lead right to him. It's because God's writing the book. He's just using human authors and their personalities to do so. That's what Peter's telling us. And so we can trust God's proven, confirmed, true word. So what do we do with all this? Well, there's, there's a lot that we could do. I'm going to just take a moment. I want to ask, I got five questions. We'll just let these questions help us process, help us think, consider, reflect, make application in our life with, res- with respect to God's word. Question number one, are you yielded and submitted to God's word over your life? Are you yielded to God? Now, now, now Spurgeon's excerpt is really helpful in framing this, right? Because it gives us the value of the written word. We don't only have to have the audible word of God, but that the written word can and should be authoritative over us. Are you yielded and submitted to God's word over your life? Secondly, and this is really a similar question, um, is your life oriented to the word or do you attempt to orient the word to your life? When you go to the Bible, are you saying, how can I make God say what I want him to say? Are you saying, God, what are you saying? And I'm going to respond accordingly. Who's orienting who? Number three, are you willing to invest the time and energy needed to learn and grow in and through the word? Are you paying attention? Right? Is there diligence and desire? Number four, is reading your Bible a top-level priority in your life? And if it's not, what needs to change so that it is? And then finally this, do you have an expectation that God's word will illuminate his truth about the world? And if not, you should. And when you open your Bible, do you expect, not demand, you don't get a demand, do you expect that the word of God is going to give you insight into what's going on in the world around you. We would do well to open our Bibles and have that expectation. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to the table. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Father, we're thankful for how your word is instructive, it's helpful, it guides, it directs. Father, we're thankful for the witnesses that you have provided, that have gone before us, that help us, God, we pray that you would enable us to be convinced of your truth so that we would stand in your word and honor and glorify you in all things. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.